Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. In a sudden flash, it all comes clear. It's a eureka moment, an epiphany. Hi, I'm Marcus Smith, host of the Constant Wonder podcast. The world offers marvel, meaning, and mystery around every single corner. In nature, art, science, culture, history, we talk everything from bees and beetles to obelisks and asteroids. Experience the thrill of transformative encounter. We'll bring more wonder to your day. Listen to Constant Wonder wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, welcome to another episode of History Hack. We're very, very, very excited today. Alex, tell us who we got. Oh, this is going to be good today. Today we have Ricky Phillips with us, who is a military historian, blogger, and award-winning author. You may know him by his most recent book, which is The First Casualty, The Untold Story of the Falklands War. And that's what we're going to do today. Uh, what we're going to do is actually bust some myths about the war. Ricky, how are you doing? I'm really, really good. And thank you for so much for having me on the show. It's uh... I've been quite a big fan of it, so I've been looking forward to today. Oh, brilliant. Um, so what we're going to do, basically, is obnoxiously chuck statements at you, and you're going to tell <laughs> us uh, whether they're true or not. So should we just get cracking straight away? Uh, yeah, sure. Uh, do you just want me to shoot them down, or do you want me to uh, just true or not true game show style? or, or actually? Go uh, and let's them a do bit? a bit of game show, like with the immediate answer, but then you can break it down for us and tell us the truth behind it. So what if I was to say to you, the Falklands War was all about oil? Definitely not true. So, I mean, this, this is, is said by so many people, you know, um, oh, it was all about oil. Um, I mean, one of the most obvious things is we're 39 years now, more or less, down the line from the Falklands War and still people like Rockhopper and other companies, they're saying they're doing tests and going, there might be oil. We don't know how much. We don't know if it's profitable. Um, we don't know how deep down. I mean, this is nearly 40 years further on. And you, you can find, you know, in the early 80s, um, a lot of it, the subject had been mentioned. And a lot of UK politicians, they were still talking about if oil and gas were found. It was not a big news. A few people had sort of said something. There wasn't a nothing, but I mean, it was it was just so far removed from anything to actually do with the war. The concept of oil on either side um, is silly. I mean, if you said it now, people go, okay, maybe, maybe. You know, if if the same scenario happened like now, forty years later, but back then in nineteen eighty two, no, it absolutely wasn't about oil. Um, there were there were guesses that there might be some. That was it. Certainly not enough to go, go to war over. And um, last year I was at a, a wonderful uh, major Falklands, uh, Falklands War event or symposium uh, called the FM37 at Manchester University. And I watched a lovely lady, wonderful historian, Grace Livingston, absolutely destroy this idea that it was about oil 
at all. And um, I'm sure Grace could do it 10 times more justice than I can, but I can absolutely guarantee you the Falklands War was not about oil. Simply the guess there might be some, but nobody really knew. It was a big if. And in fact, it wasn't even a big if. It was a very, very small if somewhere out there. It was nothing to do with the war. I can't really see a nation going to war over what if. Yeah, exactly. Um, there was just, there was, it, there was nothing really in it. I mean, the, there's the whole um, Colite connection to do with Dennis Thatcher. And um, uh, it was a company that he had a major shares in. And, you know, I never believed this, this concept when, when uh, Maggie Thatcher said uh, that the Falklands invasion came out of the blue and her and Dennis had to look on a, a globe or a world atlas to find where the Falklands were rubbish. That was rubbish. And certainly there was profit or there was things to be guarded in the Falklands, but none of it really was to do with oil. And certainly any concept that, that dear old Maggie had anything to do with it being about oil, it's just, it's not even a factor. It won't stop it being raised as a subject again and again, but I can absolutely guarantee you myself and and better people than I who have really studied into this can absolutely tell you it is not, it was not about oil. Okay, so we've got number two, and it is about Maggie Thatcher. <laughs> she no, just comes into it, doesn't she? <laughs> she always comes into this. Right, so Maggie Thatcher demanded the deactivation codes for uh, Exit, if I'm all right, if I've pronounced that. Exocet missiles from President Mittenard under the threat of nuking Buenos Aires. <laughs> okay, so <laughs> Mitterrand was the president. Um, yeah, this story now, th- I know where this story comes from. And um, it was a story, I, I want to say it was in The Guardian. It was November 2005. And um, it, was, it was this whole big thing. Um, you know, Thatcher threatened to nuke Buenos Aires if she wasn't given these these codes for the exocets. Um, quick answer, no, absolute rubbish. That one, again, is a myth. Um, where it came from, so as I said, I believe it was The Guardian. It was certainly November 2005, the story. And it was in relation to the promotion of a book called Rendezvous by a man called Ali Magoudi. Now, Ali Magoudi um, had been President Mitterrand's psychoanalyst uh, between, I think, 1982 and 1984. And now Mitterrand died in 96. And there was, after Mitterrand died, there was this whole swathe. People waited a few years. And then this whole swathe of books all about him and things he supposedly said or supposedly did. Of course, they can't back them up. Um, Ali Magudi, I mean, I believe he was, he was a, certainly he was a psychoanalyst. He was employed in a medical or doctoral you know, capacity, he certainly shouldn't have even breached the confidentiality, but that just goes to show he was out out for the money. Um, how do I know that this is absolutely not true? Very, very simple answer. Exocet missiles do not have codes. There is no such thing as a deactivation code for an Exocet missile. Uh, the man who designed them, Jean-Emile Stauff, never designed them with a code um and there is no such thing as some you know some something you can tap a few buttons and oh look it goes away the exocet missiles are still manufactured today in fact my my brother used to work for mbda missile systems 
um, not too long ago. And, you know, they still manufacture or part manufacture the Exocet. And they still, 40 years later, do not have codes. So there are no codes for Exocet missiles. It's simply a myth that was put out there to sell a book from a man who didn't really know. The reason Ali Magudi put this out there, Exocets were still very, you know, people didn't know all about this stuff. And he just put it out there and thought, oh, that sounds good. Um, there are no codes to Exocets, then or now or ever. <laughs> there is no I love how thing. emphatic that is. It can't yeah. be true because there are no codes. Yeah, that is the, the most simple thing. Um, you know, if Mitterrand told him that, I'd be surprised. But then Mitterrand was... Um, was fibbing and of course Mitterrand should have he would have known anyway because his brother was on the board of Aerospatial uh, who, who made the Exocet so he would have known and um, now did Thatcher threaten to nuke Buenos Aires maybe that's the second thing um, you can find and I've seen them um, you can find reports on the feasibility of and we looked at every single option during the war of um, what it would take to bomb Buenos Aires. What it would well, that's take just to... war gaming, isn't it? It doesn't mean you want to do it or you intend exactly. to do yeah. it. Yeah, I, I mean, a nuclear option, not on Buenos Aires, by the way, potentially somewhere around Tierra del Fuego. A nuclear option was mooted, but in such a way as, and you know, just when the war had pretty much started, a nuclear option was looked at, but that's because you look at every single option. And in fact, if you looked at, the various other options that we were considering at this time. I'll give you a, a great one. Um, based on the, um, based on a guy in the dockyard who apparently didn't have a name, but was bribable or pliable. Um, we were going to somehow parachute a, um, a special forces team with some ship's engineers onto the deck of the Venticinco de Mayo, the Argentine carrier to take the carrier and sail it out of their port and steal it for their very noses. This was a plan we considered. So if you think of how stupid that idea was, every other you can see how many other options were put on there on the table. And a nuclear option was one of hundreds, even thousands of crazy ideas that just got scrapped. But they looked at every option. So yeah, the, the nuking Buenos Aires was never going to happen. And Exocets still don't have codes. <laughs> I think we've covered that. <laughs> I think we have. But unfortunately, there's still more Maggie bashing to come. Poor Maggie. Uh, like Marmite, isn't she? Um, the, another one that's levelled at her is that she started the Falklands War to win an election. Yeah. Um, <laughs> this is one, I mean, I guarantee you in, in 40 years time, you know, you'll still see it on the internet. Oh, Maggie started that war to win an election. She did... Um, no. Quick answer, no. Um, how do I know this? Um, so, I mean, I have uh, a copy of every bit of signals intelligence, every flash telegram, you, you name it, from a year before the Falklands War kicked off. And every single one, um, with growing urgency, you know, when South Georgia starts becoming a bit of an issue and things like that, every single one says, do not provoke the Argentines. Do nothing to provoke the Argentines. Whatever you do, don't provoke the Argentines. Don't, we don't want any hostility or any cause for hostility. Um, Thatcher did not want any kind of war. Um, but she 
she wasn't blind to the situation, but she had to play the situation to her advantage, or she had to play with the cards she was dealt. Um, now, you've got to think back here in uh, early uh, 1982. Um, I mean, now to us, she, she's Thatcher. She's the Iron Lady. You know, I met her once, and I, I, in my mind, she was seven feet tall, you know, and she wasn't. She was only about five foot eight or something like that. Um, but she was this huge dominating figure when I met her. And because that's the image we have of her. But back then, in the very early 1980s, she was that woman. We'd never had a female prime minister. Everyone said she would be useless. It's not a job that a woman can do. She will fold at it. Um, and that's what a lot of people, and, and we started with the things like the Iranian embassy siege. Well, they'd given her this, this name, you know, the Iron Lady. They'd realized that she had a bit of backbone. Um, but a lot of people wanted Thatcher out. Now, there, there's a, a very interesting thing, which to be honest, history hasn't really covered it quite a lot. And they really, they should, if you want to know what's behind the Falklands War, um, is the thing, I, I think it was uh, historian Hugh Baixano, lovely man, I've, I've uh, spoken to him a few times as well. But Hugh Baixano termed it the Whitehall War, and it really was. So when people say the British government, really, in the context of the Whitehall War, there was no such thing. It was the government, if you will, and the FCO, the Foreign and Commonwealth Office. And the FCO had, they were the old mandarins very much of the government, and they very much enjoyed their position as being able to make or break a prime minister. And um, the Falklands was going to become the sacrificial stone for that woman. Now, after the FCO pretty much fell, and of course after the war, Thatcher was, you know, reigned supreme, she could do anything. Um, there were two letters found in FCO files, and these are quite interesting. The first says um, that this, 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 this woman prime minister, how dare she be a woman, um, she has um, been weak-kneed, she's allowed the Argentines to take the Falklands, she hasn't responded, it's a national disgrace, and therefore she must resign. The second letter, dated the same day, says this ridiculous rash woman has thrown us uh, irresponsibly into this war for the Falklands. We have lost. And now it's a national disgrace and therefore she must resign. Um, <laughs> so the bottom line is now my guess, and I will say this as a guess, my guess is that she knew about it. If she hadn't read the letters, she was certainly aware that she was being cornered. And Thatcher, if you actually look at what's happening in the run-up to the Falklands War, she's almost something you wouldn't think of, of Maggie doing, but she almost put her head in the sand and was like, just maybe it won't happen. Maybe it will just go away and this will not be an issue. And she was literally between a rock and a hard place. Then Argentina invades and it wasn't Thatcher who said, right, war. Thatcher was looking around going, what do we do? And I tell you, the person who wanted the war, who knew the war was coming, was Admiral Sir Henry Leach. And it was Admiral Sir Henry Leach who walked in his full attire into, um, into the Houses of Parliament, where he knew Maggie was, and he walked in there, and he literally jumped the chain of command. He knew it was coming. In fact, to give you an idea, Operation Corporate, which was the mission to recover the Falklands for us, was, it even had a name, and it was actually moving several days before the Argentines invaded. And that was all to do with Henry Leach. 
he had made sure he'd said it was um, a little bit of, you know, a little bit of prescience, a little bit of experience. He just tr- liked to make sure that a few of the ships were maybe sitting around Gibraltar and had just been brought home and everyone was... Leach knew what was coming. And Leach needed desperately to reverse um, the, the, the 1981 defence white paper, which had just destroyed everything the Navy had. And it was going to destroy jobs. And there were Admiral's sons who, who were, <laughs> had been promised promotions. And the Navy has this wonderful history and tradition of looking after itself. And Leach realized that the Navy was basically going to be reduced to nothing. And he knew what was coming. And when that war came, he went straight into Thatcher's office and he said, you must act. And she said, why? And he said, because if you do not, and if we pussyfoot in our actions and are not resolute in a month from now, you will be living in a different world and in a different country where our word counts for nothing. And he literally reached out his hand as the proverbial olive branch and said to Thatcher, come with me, I've got this. Um, And Thatcher grabbed it with both hands. She suddenly saw Leach was like the Archangel Gabriel turning up and she thought, thank God this man is talking to me with such confidence, we can do this. And a lot of the other people from the, the army and the air force were looking at Leach and saying, what does he know that we don't? Um, and it's actually, you know, I mean, this wasn't the first time Leach had done this. Leach was desperate. The, the Cod Wars before this, the third Cod War, we'd been embarrassed in the previous two. And Leach as good as started the third Cod War just to go, right, we need to go out there and do something. And again, they were moving before the government knew anything about it. And this was a, a ramming war over Cod. This wasn't the Falklands War. Leach needed something. He knew exactly what he was doing. And it was not Thatcher starting the war to win the election. She literally had her head in the sand. She was cornered. The, the wolf was at the door. And she realized she had nowhere to go. And in strides to Henry Leach and says, come with me. I've got this. Leach had his own reasons, but it was nothing whatsoever to do with Thatcher. Do you know what I did? The most, as someone who's not old enough to remember her being in charge, um, I just about remember her fall and only because uh, I saw things my parents were watching on TV and stuff. But um, the thing that offends me most about her is uh, Gillian Anderson's overdone accent in The Crown. Oh, it, I, it, I, you know, I, it just sounds I, like she's been drinking lemon juice. It's like, oh, 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 it's, it's, it's bad. It's like a panto. But um, I think The Crown has gone as a, as a series has gone beyond panto. And I think a lot of people have stopped watching it. It's just got ridiculous. And the worst bit is, is people, I don't know how people are assuming this show, The Crown, is, is like a documentary. Yeah. And it isn't, you know. It's, and, it's just um, flat out mean now. Yeah. Yeah. But um, yeah, I, I, as someone who wasn't there to see her, I don't get how angry she makes some people. But um, I think you've done a great job of dispelling a couple of uh, anti-Thatcher things, at least to do with the Falklands War there. I, I hope so. And, you know, I mean, Thatcher was, uh, even though I'm speaking today, today from Edinburgh, um, Thatcher was my MP. Um, you know, I'm from Whetstone, North London, and she was MP for Whetstone and Finchley and what have you. She was our MP. And I remember she was an amazing MP. Anyone who needed anything done, you know, the bins, the streetlights, um, or, you know, I know it's council, but she'd still go with it. There was a lady 
next door whose whose husband had been um killed by a uh, trucker from from somewhere in Europe and basically they had said that this country had basically um not been inclined to help pursue him and my neighbor um Tina I remember she she got in contact with Thatcher and Thatcher went I mean she's the prime minister and she's running a large section of not just the UK but you know world affairs and everything she was a major player and this Thatcher's still going after some trucker she did she brought him to justice she was an incredible MP for us um and even people have a go about the poll tax. My family were better off under the poll tax. So I have nothing against Thatcher at all. And having met her, I think she was absolutely wonderful. Um, and, and in fact, I'll impart something to you or to anyone else. I was, uh, when I met her, I was, um, I'm 42 now. I, I was in my sort of late teens and um, uh, a, a chap who, who worked for the uh, Enfield Southgate Conservative Association um, just sort of went, Ricky has a question and just shoved me at her. And like I said, I remember her being like seven feet tall, even though she wasn't. And I came up, I mumbled like the most God awful thing, you know, something like what's your secret or this total face palm moment. Cause I wasn't prepared for it. And um, I remember she, she sort of produced this finger and it, it looked it looked like this sort of this this icicle aimed at your heart, and she started stabbing me in the chest with it, you know. And she said, "You must have a hot meal," she said. And I thought, "Do I look underfed or something?" But she <laughs> stabbing away, and I mean, with every syllable. And apparently, she was giving her secret, and she said, "Whatever you do in life, before you decide to attempt it." You must have a hot meal. Stab, stab, stab. I'm quite sure she drew blood. To this day, I've taken that advice. And I'll tell you, it's really good advice and it does work. <laughs> and apparently that was her secret. Um, I left literally bloodied and bruised, but feeling very, very proud of myself. <laughs> I think it was about 17 or 18. <laughs> that is outstanding. So, okay, let's move away from Thatcher because we're going to start probably bashing another country. Um, so our next one is France. Oh, you've got to bash them, haven't you? It's in our blood. It's, it's a national <laughs> sport. It's, it's, it's considered patriotic. It's a, it's a duty. But go on, please. <laughs> so France helped Argentina in the war, yay or nay? Definitely no. Um, it's, you know, I'm going to say definitely, and then I'm going to say ah, oh, but. Um, I mean, first off, France were, uh, they were, you know, straight on the money. They They backed us in anything to do with the UN, um, the Baptist with the arms embargo to uh, Argentina and everything else. So France were on our side. And, you know, we called them our, our greatest ally in the war, which in many ways they were. Um, you know, they sent mirages over here to um, dogfight against Harriers so we could work out um, what to do and, and you know, how how to fight against them unfortunately the mirages actually came out on top every time but we were using um harrier gr3s not sea harriers so actually they they performed differently and um the french were helping us with some of the ideas on um things to do with exocet um but again much as you know much as we had what I said, the Whitehall War, you can't say it was the British government as one because it wasn't. It was a, a war in the corridors of power. 
that's similar in France. Um, I mean, you've got to remember, like I said, that, as I said, President Mitterrand's brother was on the board of Aerospatiale, who made the Exocet missile. Um, although France didn't send a lot of things um, to Argentina, they sort of conveniently might have forgotten for a little while that they had a technical team from Dassault who were still in Argentina and were helping to um, helping to program those missiles to get them onto the aircraft because the aircraft that they had, the Super Etonards, um, used analog systems, whereas the Exocet was digital and they had to basically get the systems talking to each other so as aircraft could talk to missile, engage with radar and say, that target there, got it, yep, hit that. And um, the team, the technical team from Dassault, the Argentinians said, you know, when asked, did, you know, did they know about it? They said, yeah, they didn't exactly protest. You know, they didn't go, no, they didn't exactly go on strike, is what they said. Um, and of course, then there was a shipment of Exocets which was about to go out to Argentina, despite the embargo. And Thatcher wrote to Mitterrand. Again, you can find this letter online. Um, she wrote to him and said, you know, if these got there, it, it might be a serious blow to uh, our future working relationships. And in fact, it could be very, very embarrassing for France if people found out. And then that shipment was stopped. Um, but actually, there was another one from Spain, and the Spanish tipped us off about it. And there was another one from Spain. Oh, they said, oh, but we were okay. We, that was going to Peru. And it's like, yeah, because the Peruvians are buying the Exocets for the Argentinians. So that's not quite true. Um, certainly, um, France was sending um, right up to right up to the war, and it's, it's conjectured during the war via a roundabout way but some of the new mm40 which is still a surface to surface missile did reach argentina so they argentina had the what was called if you don't know your exosets so they had what was called the mm38 which was a surface to surface version now the uk had exosets we bought a, a few hundred of them as well um i think we bought about 400 surface to surface mm38 exosets to put on our ships, which were on our ships. But what we did not have was the air launch. The AM-39 was the air-launched Exocet missile. And of course it had, um, it was faster, it had a longer range because of course it's not firing from a ship or something basically stationary. You know, it's flying from a moving aircraft. It's already got the acceleration. And um, so certainly the uprated MM-38, which was the MM-40, had got to Argentina, but it's very cloudy how. And uh, you you can argue to a, a, a little point that not France per se, but that certain people within France, possibly or not with Mitterrand's knowledge, uh, and probably most likely, most, almost definitely with his brother's knowledge, were happy to see the Exocet missile in particular go to Argentina because after the Falklands War, after HMS Sheffield was hit, Exocet sales went through the roof. Everyone wanted them. And in fact, just after the war, Aerospatiale kind of got in trouble 
because they had the AM39 on show, an arms show, and it said, uh, it's a tested in combat. <laughs> it was the, this was the strap line, successfully tested in combat. And it was like, against us. That wasn't good. Um, so did certain elements in France have a vested interest in potentially Argentina receiving more of these in particular? Did France help Argentina as a nation? No, France was, and it is true, you know, they were a very, very good friend to us and they backed us off. And in fact, they went out of their way to help us in a lot of ways. So much as uh, it, it is a national sport, a bit of a bit of French bashing, unfortunately, when I can't join in on um some people in France might have had a vested interest in seeing how well Argentina did with French weapon systems. But there was no evidence, no, no evidence out there to say that France tried to help Argentina. That certain elements might have done, but France itself did not. I think that's the best way to put it. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince, they exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Brilliant. Um, <laughs> I love it. We do, we do have to be nice about France on occasion. Uh, let's do an Argentinian. It's tough, doesn't it? It it feels odd, but let's do an Argentinian one because it doesn't ever really feel odd, especially after the Maradona incident at the World Cup, uh, having a go at the Argentinians. So Argentina used untrained soldiers to fight the war. Yeah, so this is a big, it's not a clear cut yes and no. I mean, they did use some untrained soldiers to fight the war, but they also used a lot of very well-trained soldiers to fight the war. Um, so th- it's a betwixt and between answer, you know. This one isn't isn't sort of a yes or no as such. Um, now, a lot of the, the view that people have of the Argentine soldiers um, is, is sort of these scared, starved, frozen, ragged conscripts who are all about 12, armed with catapults and sticks and, and rusty bits of metal that might once have been a gun, um, just getting stomped on by by our boys, and although that that caricature, this concept of of what they have in Argentina, they call Los Chicos de la Guerra, the the boys of the war, which was actually a famous book, and then that 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 saying sort of has been turned against itself, and now they're saying they weren't boys, they were men. Um, but you can actually find variations. I mean, yes, there were guys who were there, be it on the front line or in rear areas, who had two weeks training and didn't know what they were doing. That's a fact. But actually, that isn't the sum of it. So if you look at um, a lot of their units, I mean, firstly, they had, they brought with them 601 and 602 Commando, who were every bit as good as our special forces. Um, And any of the guys who went up against them would tell you that. You know, they even 
forced sort of um, in the battles around Mount Kent and trying to move up towards the next line. They even forced some, you know, retreats of our guys. They they fought very well at places like uh, uh, Top Marlow and things. They were no slouches. Um, they brought with them what they call the BIM-5 or the, the 5th Battalion Infantry Marine. Now, technically, they were conscripts, but they were a much, much better class, better trained, better equipment, better clothes, better food, better weapons, better morale. They were well-trained. Um, if you look at, um, I don't know, so the, um, uh, let, let's look at the, the 10th Mechanized Brigade, which was a large amount of all the forces that were around Stanley and in the final battles and things like that. So, for instance, I mean, a lot of them, uh, just from the, say, the 10th Mechanized, which was a, a big feature of that. So when the war was declared, they realized that all their conscripts from what they called the, the class of 62, um, in other words, anyone born in 62 who had been called up, would have done their year's national service, and they'd just been let go. They realized they, they only had, you know, a few raw guys. So what they did is they put out the call and most of the old guys re-enlisted with the regiment. Um, so the 10th Mechanized went out there. It was probably something between um, two-thirds to three-quarters of what they call old soldiers. So they had done a year's training um, and a year's conscription. That year um, that they'd gone in there, in fact, was the biggest war games um, that they'd they pretty much ever done, you know, and it was a full brigade level exercise with accompanying artillery and aircraft and everything um, out in the desert. And it was a huge, great big war game. It was like, so these were actually probably the most experienced conscripts that had ever been produced at this time that were out there. And that's just in one brigade. Now, if you look at some of these um, units, so the, uh, in the brigade, so the, the seventh regiment, had done specialized training, commando training with 601 commando. The 25th regiment had been put through a four week intensive commando training course. This was, you know, this was on top of all their normal stuff. Um, you'll also find like the, the third, sixth, seventh and 25th regiments of that brigade all had to put together a specialized platoon, which is going to be put into an oversized company altogether. And they all underwent, specialist commando training as well so they had proper proper commando units they did have some good the the gendarmerie and the um um quite a few others were good professional units they had uh marine battalions that the the fourth battalion were represented there as well as the fifth um and a lot of their frontline units although they were not tough professionals they were not scared little boys these were guys with a year's service behind them. They knew their, their officers and their NCOs well. They knew how to handle a weapon. And they'd even undergone very, very intensive war games and exercises, which others hadn't done. So you will, you will get the stories of the scared, starved, ragged conscript. And they did exist, but it wasn't the whole picture, you know? Um, I mean, I, I know living local to me, there's a... Um, a para who was at Goose Green and he, he did. I mean, at Goose Green, a lot of them were not good quality soldiers at Goose Green. Um, and he even said there was this kid, he looked about 15 
and pointed his gun at me and I just swatted it out of his hand. I put his face on the floor, put my gun in the dirt beside him. I pulled the trigger and I said, you're dead. Stay there. Because he said, I didn't want anyone to do anything to him. He was like a scared little kid and he was sensible enough to stay there out the way and, and, and not, not get up again. Um, and, you know, you, you will find, like in Argentina, there's this, this story, the man is a local hero, a school teacher who suddenly decided it was his patriotic duty to sign up and go to war. And he's well known. The story about him isn't well known, is that he put his class of, I think, 14 and 15 year old school kids on the bus, told them they were going on a school trip and then enlisted them all as cadets. And all these kids went out to the Falklands. And you won't find this written down because they all joined in after a, a few days of shells and bombs and nasty stuff. They all got together. These, I think it's about 30 of them, kids. And they all had their, I, I don't know what weapons they had, but they all had a thing on the count of three. We all shoot each other in the leg. Um, so we get invalided out. And they did. They all shot each other in the leg. And one of these boys... I think someone had missed him, maybe, or something like that. He'd only got a mild flesh wound. He was so young and so small and tiny and scared that the nurses, the, the Falkland Islands nurses in, in King Edward Memorial Hospital and Stanley, actually took this boy in and hid him in broom cupboards and they smuggled him around. Um, the Argentine soldiers were after him, trying to find him. They, they knew someone was missing and they wanted to quickly get rid of this because it was, you know, otherwise they'd look really really bad and the nurses hid this poor little boy throughout the war from his own people so yeah you will find these these ragged starved scared conscripts but that wasn't the full story and in fact even the the trouble was the best quality i'm oh, sorry not not no the, let's say the average you know the the better quality uh conscript the class of 62 conscript who had done his years training already and everything else even those guys who were no slouches, they were not cowards. They knew what they were there to do. Um, and, you know, they were prepared to do it. Um, but the problem is when you are freezing cold, when you are utterly starved, and that is true, the, the, they simply had no supply system. The men were really hungry, borderline starving. A few even died of starvation and malnutrition. Um, now, after the war... The Rattenbach report, which was Argentina's own official report, it looked and it said that through basically um, neglect and maltreatment, most of the units in that war were somewhere between 40 to 50 percent below combat effectiveness before even a shot was fired. So a lot of people think, you know, they were just scared little kids. They weren't. But, you know, you could have put anyone's soldiers in, in that front line, starved them, beaten them made them freezing because you put them out there in summer uniforms and you'd have probably got near on the same result, you know? Um, but no, they, they were not scared little boys. You will find that, but that is by no means the, the full story, shall we say. So I think we should talk about your biggest myth bust because um, it's what you wrote your book about, wasn't it? It it was. Yeah. Um, so, well, this is the thing, of course, there's, there's the, the Falklands War has so many myths and mysteries and everything else. And for, for a war that is 74 days, um, it's got more, I think, than, than, than any, other, any other war, certainly for its longevity. And I think most of that is because between the UK 
and Argentina, you can look, I mean, we can't even agree on the name of the place. Um, there is simply, there are no two days where both sides agree. You could read a British day-by-day history and then an Argentine day-by-day history, and you would not think it was the same war. Apart from one day, day one, invasion day. And that sticks out like a sore thumb because we literally seem to just give Argentina their story. It's the only story we don't say, uh, actually, it was this. Um, and of course, this comes down to, as you say, the, the famous book that I wrote, The First Casualty, which looked at day one. It was the, this story of the invasion as told by everyone involved. So the myth is 60 Royal Marines, as good as laid down for a small group of Argentinian commandos, promptly surrendering after firing off a few shots, killing one, wounding three. True or false? False. Absolutely false. Um, so the, the British defenders in total with some, um, I get basically 60 Royal Marines, plus the um, men from the, the Royal Navy as well who were there, uh, 10 of them. Um, did they lay down? No, they fought tooth and nail to the very last round. You know, you can read it and you did read it at the time as a sort of a ripple of shots. And that was it. Um, and this token defense. In fact, I mean, they are quoted as having fired 6,462 rounds um, plus 12 anti-tank rockets. But that isn't even actually close to what they did use up when they compiled that ammunition expenditure. Um most of the guys had been up for 48 hours. They fought a battle and they were on a plane um, and they were exhausted. You know, and sort of two thirds of the guys were asleep. Um, the, the guys, Naval Party 8901, fought literally tooth and nail with everything uh, a Royal Marine has and everything a Royal Marine knows how to do. And they had absolutely no expectation of surviving that battle. And so, so the first casualty came to, to me in a, a, a series of happy accidents, I suppose. You know, um, it was never a book I set out to write, but it was a story that came to me. And I started to look at the invasion story and realized that it was just wrong. It looked wrong. It sounded wrong. And when you started to look at fragments of things the guys had said and the things that, that the guys had done and some of the evidence out there, you realize this was this was a really, you know, this story had been woefully undertold. And almost by chance, I started to bump into the British guys. And of course, I was the first person to put them all together. And we started to write First Casualty. But then what happened is the Argentines turned up and said, can we be in it? Because the story they told that day isn't anything like what happened. And it made it sound like we just turned up waving flags. Can we be in it? And I said, brilliant. And then, of course, the Falkland Islanders turned up and said, well, if someone's finally going to write the true story, someone should ask us. And I said, you're absolutely right. And sort of sitting there, head in hands, trying to get your head around the idea that you've just agreed to write the world's first ever three-sided first-person narrative history. <laughs> um, <laughs> and and um, it, it was a task. I don't know if I'd like to do it again, but nobody laid down, nobody surrendered. And this was for many of them, this was an absolute battle for their lives. And the Argentine casualties, one killed, three wounded, aren't even credible. Um, the one thing First Casualty did, which no other book has ever done, um, and I was well aware of this, is it takes the reader um, 
into the hospital. Has, the Falklands has only got one hospital, King Edward Memorial Hospital, right there in Stanley, right by the action. And all the killed and wounded and what have you were taken in there. And, you know, I spoke to the doctors and the nurses and some of them described um, operations and types of wounds and, you know, um, what the Argentines were, were doing with the the dead guys. And there was a, a massive Amtrak APC parked out the back of the hospital and it was literally rammed full of them. Um, and then they came out and said one killed, three wounded, and everyone was like, yeah, well, okay, something's up with that. Um, even a few of the Argentines have admitted it, but it's very hard for them. Um, if they say the wrong thing over there, it's it's not like here. You know, mm. they, could, they could get in serious trouble over there. But, yeah, I mean, the casualties, um, I've heard anything from sort of, uh, roughly around sort of 60 to 80 killed and you know probably as many wounded or something like that which is far far different from one killed three wounded yeah massively different um before we finish um and you tell everybody remind everybody about the book i do just want to quickly ask you there's a 90 year old war secret on the files that no one's going to get to look at before 2072 is this true <laughs> no um no I know where that comes from. The 2072 files that everyone talks about, the 90-year secret. Um, no, so this was invented by uh, a rather unscrupulous um, Argentine. It wasn't really a historian as such. He was, um, he'd been in the, in the um, Air Force. I think he was a, a pilot who uh, went, went on to be a Commodore. And a man called Ruben Oscar Morrow. And Ruben Morrow invented the 2072 secret, um, basically to, to sell a particular book um, called uh, Malvinas Guerra in Auditor, um, and also a few other books. And the idea is, the premise is that after the war, he claims that he, he stalked the halls of power around the UK. No one ever met him. No one knows who he is. He's that <laughs> unimportant. He stalked the halls of power in the UK where British politicians, generals and um, officers and soldiers begged him for anonymity in order to tell the truth. And of course, he just wrote a load of old rubbish. Um, because who's going to check? By 2072, Morrow's going to be dead. Um, so is everyone else. Um he was rubber stamped by Brigadier Ernesto Crespo um, of the Air Force, who literally just said, yeah, what he said, that's true. And it's just become this thing you can type in 2072. And people still believe it to this day. Um, it doesn't exist. And in fact, after Crespo died, Moro's pretty much in, I think, the 10th or 12th edition of his book he's finally actually retracted it so it isn't just a lie it's a baseless lie because even he says it's not true um and he kind of slipped up someone said give me one name one name of anyone you spoke to and he sort of blustered and comes up with the name of a the the harrier pilot harry trent because you know, prince harry and you know trent is trent bridge cricket or trent was a, an engine as well of course um and he comes up with the, the Harrier pilot, Harry Trent, who told him everything. You can look on the, on the, on the Sama. Um, Harry Trent never existed. The one name he pulled up and the guy never existed. Um, in fact, it didn't even take British historians to debunk Moro. Argentinian historians did it because Moro is that unknown outside of Argentina. But he, you know, 
he came up with this lie and people still repeat it to this day, much like the, the fable, famous myth of HMS Invincible being sunk or being damaged in the war. A load of Argentines still believe that because that all came out of all the rubbish that Moro wrote. And of course, Invincible was never hit by anything at any time in the war. But you can still see hundreds of pictures and articles of it blowing up and on fire. And, you know, there's whole groups about this, the biggest myth of the war, the Invincible myth, guaranteed a million percent it was never hit by anything. I spoke to over a hundred members of her crew, you know, it was never hit. So there is no 2072 secret there are as i believe i'm still correct 519 unopened files on the falklands war in the uk but none of them have that date of 2072 that is an absolute myth and in fact a, a lot of these secret files are to do with um things chile was helping us out with known as operation shutter um, a few other things. I, I, I got sneaked a, a few little bits. There's certainly bits about the invasion, which showed that everything I wrote in First Casualty was true, which the MOD have actually admitted. Um, and, you know, and then a lot of things, I got hold of a few things. A lot of them were just really boring phone conversations between Thatcher and Reagan. And they were, you know, they, they were not like the smoking gun. They, they were just really quite dull. Um, so there was no 2072 secret. There was no great myth even though the argentines say you know on 14th of june 2072 all secrets will be revealed and the british will actually admit that they had you know 300 ships sunk and 10,000 men killed and you know that this is what they believe unfortunately and it's it, it isn't just moro i think a lot of other ridiculous sort of pseudo historians have taken this story because great if he says it we can blame him if it's wrong and then we can just write whatever we like and this is another reason why the histories between the UK and Argentina are so different because you get a lot of guys, particularly over in Argentina, just writing a lot of rubbish. Um, and the more rubbish you write, the more it sounds like you did well, the more the people are buying it out there. Which yeah, well, of, you did say like, this was in the 12th edition. He finally uh, admitted he was lying. So he's already think, bought a house off the back of it. Oh, I think so. Yeah. I mean, he didn't say I am lying, but he completely, he literally omitted any concept of 2072. In fact, basically, unless for a very special reason, all British files were declassified in 2012. And that's all he says, that they were all declassified in 2012. He's just completely moved away from the whole 2072 thing. Um, so, you know, it, there is no, you know, you, you will not find a war crime for the Belgrano, which it was not, you know, you will not find um, um, any kind of nuclear stuff or, you know, um, anything ridiculous. You will find stuff. Yes. And we have secret files. Every country has secret files. You know, the biggest lie is that Argentina says it's declassified all of its, its ones, which it hasn't. Um, but there is definitely no 2072 secret. HMS Invincible was never hit. France did not help Argentina. Um, there were no codes. It was not about oil. <laughs> Belgrano wasn't a war crime, I think, if I haven't said that already. And no, Argentina didn't just send, scar you know, starving, scared um, little children to war. Um, some some people did. Not all of those answers are clear, but yeah, you know, are a clear yes or no. But that's pretty much it. And yes, there's loads more secrets. You know, I, I could tell you what I know. I'd go to prison for some of the stuff I know, which I'm not going to tell you. <laughs> but um, 
on balance, there is no great smoking gun. But I think the reason we have these rumors and these these myths, we've done a lot of myth busting, is that the two sides will simply never agree. And like I said, perhaps the biggest bit of fun, and I would say to anyone, you know, if you if you have an interest in the Falklands War or you think it's something you want to pick up with and actually have a good look at it, you know, the story of the Falklands War is not the one you'll read in Wikipedia or probably on Max Hastings or anything like that. Pick up First Casualty and go from there and you'll suddenly, everything will kind of drop into focus and you'll go, Ah, oh, I get that. You know, um, there's a lot more to the war. We'll not find out. There's some of which I might add I've said today. So hopefully your readers can work with that, you know. But if you start with casualty, you start on the right foot, you will literally understand the war a heck of a lot more. Thank you so much for coming on to bust Falklands War myths with us. Uh, it's been so interesting. And to share some details from the first casualty, it just thank you, because I think this is a great place to start with our first uh, Falklands War episode. You're more than welcome. And, you know, I'm, I'm happy. I've got a new book coming out very soon. Last letters from Stanley. I'd love to come back and talk to you guys about that as well. And, and pretty much anything. I'm not only that Falklands War guy, but apparently I seem to be that Falklands War guy so while it's out there and it's interesting and you know it gives us stuff to talk about let's do it you know um and it's, it's always a pleasure to come on and and speak to yourselves and speak to people out there and and try and give us a bit more dimension about this war because it it fascinates me it's it's kind of my wife calls it the f word in our house because it's said so often <laughs> um but it you know it fascinates me and I really hope that that you you guys and and your readers readers or listeners i should say got got out of that because it was you know it's something i i never tire of talking about and educating people on join us tomorrow when anna jameson will be with us to talk all about love's madness this is a really interesting one Uh, i'm not going to tell you any more tune in to find out because it is really really good so don't miss that don't forget that we do exist on patreon as history hack and on patreon as well which is podbean's own version uh elena and i have had massive fun doing this in 2020 uh but life is going to change quite a lot next year and we're going to actually have to go and earn a living etc if we want to keep up the regularity that we've been bringing you and the kind of guests that we've been bringing you and the workload then we will need your help so uh, if you join There's going to be incentives for joining on either of those platforms. We're revamping ourselves on both of them. So don't forget to go in. You can do as little as a dollar a month and it all goes towards keeping up History Hack as regular as we've been able to bring it to you this year. We are now on YouTube. We are posting all of our new episodes on there and we have our own channel and we are gradually posting all of the back episodes because we have been made aware of the fact that you can only find the last hundred on some platforms. So you can go and listen to your heart's content and laugh at the cartoons and have a great time. So do go over there and subscribe. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.